and welcome back for another episode of Lead, Travel, Pray. Today we are going to focus on the leadership topic of recruiting, or talent acquisition as you may know it. The show will cover the topic from a leader angle, and our next show will cover it from the angle of a job candidate. So please stay tuned for that one as well. I'm Rebecca Ellis, and I will be moderating the conversation this time. And I'm joined by my co-host, Sandy Schneider and Michelle Strike. Hello. Hey, ladies. Hi. So we also have a very cool guest this uh, time. Her name is Michelle King, and the Michelles are together. So I'm going to let Michelle Strike introduce our guest, Michelle King. Thank you, Rebecca. So I have the absolute pleasure of having one of my dearest friends on the podcast when we were talking about the idea of talent acquisition and specifically diving into the interview side. I immediately told you guys we have to have Michelle on the podcast to share her experience and expertise, which is almost three decades in the talent acquisition and recruiting space. So she currently has been with Reinsurance Group of America, otherwise known as RGA, for almost six years and is the Vice President of Talent Acquisition and Diversity and Inclusion. Prior to that, she was at Scripps for almost eight years. Shout out to HGTV, who they helped to produce. And I'm confident that we will glean so much insight from Michelle and her decades of experience. So I'm excited to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here tonight. So thanks, Rebecca, for allowing me to introduce her. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'm super excited to hear what both of you have to add tonight, as well as my friend Sandy. Um, So we have, I know, lots of interesting things to talk about. So we wanted to kind of narrow it down to a few specific topics, or we would make hours and hours worth of uh, a show here tonight. So... I looked at a survey that LinkedIn did for the Global Talent Trends 2019 report. It's a professional networking site, and they got a hold of 5,000 recruiters and hiring managers in over 35 countries. And after they surveyed them, they came up with three themes. And those themes were that workplaces are trying to hire for soft skills and potential, that they need to offer more flexible work options, And there's a trend of being more open about pay. And so those are the three things we're going to talk about in this show. And um, I just wanted to share also, in addition to that, as we hear now, workers are wanting more transparency, accountability, and trust. Employers are also wanting more creativity, collaboration, and adaptability. And so if we factor kind of all of those things in, um, let's talk about some things that make for the best experience. Um, As a leader, we're often trying to assess soft skills, and I was interested that this came up as a trend because I feel like we've been interested in soft skills for a couple decades now, at least least that long. So why are we still struggling to put that in action, and how how come it is so difficult to assess it in the interview? Um, So let's talk about some advice for leaders on how to better assess soft skills and maybe chip away at this big need. Michelle King, what do you have in mind? Well, I think it's a great question and it's becoming more and more important in this world 
particularly where we seem to be losing that capability to have the human voice speak to one another. You're in a company and you might be sitting in the cubicle next to someone and you actually email them or IM them. You don't actually stand up and ask a question, Mm -hmm. right? Or know when to pick up a phone. And those are critical skills in any candidate to be able to have that soft um, skill capability for leaders that are looking to actually assess that, there's a number of things that they can do. It's making sure that we're actually asking the questions and giving them the opportunity as a candidate to demonstrate that they have soft skills. Whether that be an exercise where they're actually up speaking in front of a group or doing a presentation, uh, there's a multiple of two of things that we can do. And Michelle, you guys have done some things in your assessment as well that mm-hmm. with candidates. Yep. Yeah, so um, for a certain level of candidate, usually leaders and above, we have an interview component to uh, the psychological assessment side. And I really use that as a way to try to hone in on very specific examples that are showing up in their personality data. And so my advice to leaders is to make sure that um, the questions that you're asking are very specific so that you can glean an example or two of how they demonstrate that behavior as an example for how they navigate conflict rather than allowing the person to provide a generic answer of how they tend to address conflict ask for a very specific example of how that person navigated conflict what did it sound like what was the ultimate resolution And it's important to just continue to dig and not allow that answer to be, here's what I think I would do. Because the reality is when I start to hear the answer, sometimes they're overly dominant or they completely acquiesce at the beginning or immediately run it up the flagpole and get their boss to intervene. And when I ask generically how they address conflict or they refuse to give me a specific example, is usually the case. Um, They don't ever say, yeah, my go-to is to go to my manager and have that person resolve it for me, right? And not that that example is how they would resolve it each time, but it definitely gives a lot more specific data to go by. And I think that's a great example. I think it's important for leaders to continually dig. Um, So often we'll have a question as a part of an interview guide and people just ask the question and they feel like, oh, I got the answer and I write it down, but they never pull apart right? Well, what happened in that situation? Looking back, what would you have done differently? Mm-hmm. Um, what didn't go well? And then how did you handle it when it didn't go well? Or what went really right? Being able to get around those edges can, can open up your opportunity to see exactly what their soft skills are or what their skills are in general of how they might act in different situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love those follow-up questions where you, you know, they've provided this great example and this glowing result to be able to say, wow, it sounds like that went really well. If you had to do it again, how would you ensure that you had an even better result mm-hmm. or essentially what would you do differently? Um, and that re- those sorts of probing questions that you just mentioned pull people off of any sort of script that they may have been prepared. I mean, they may have been interviewing for the last three months. They have the same stories they're telling over and over. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm, the more that you can ask those those probing follow-ups that maybe they didn't expect, you get a better picture of what really happened and how do they really respond and what might that look like in the future. Yeah, definitely. 
Awesome. So one of the soft skills related things that we're often really curious about is culture fit. How will this person's kind of makeup, behaviors, etc., really fit? Um, because we know that's a predictor of long-term um, engagement in an organization and, and high performance. So how can a leader better assess culture fit while still trying to allow for a diversity mindset so that we're not recruiting people who think and act just like us? That's a good question. I think that first and foremost, one of the most important things is for someone to actually know what their culture is. So often companies can actually or struggle defining what that truly is. And if you don't know what your culture is, it's going to be hard for you to assess the person. You're going to end up just hiring someone that maybe look just like you. Mm-hmm. Is diversity important to your culture? It's not just those aspects of diversity that we can see, but it's that different thought process, mm-hmm. different experiences, and understanding how to match that with your company. I always use collaboration because it's huge in my company. Um, and often I will tell people, if you want to be that lone cowboy to just run and do things and implement them, you're going to get really str- frustrated because you're mm-hmm. not going to want to bring people alongside of you. And we do a lot of bring people alongside of you and work cross-culturally or cross-functionally, excuse me. But I think that when you ask them for specific examples, tell me about a time when you had a project that you were leading or you were on a project that worked with cross-functional teams. What was the project? How did it go? And for us, those are ways we dig in. You can take that example and apply it to the various parts of your culture that you're looking to hire people into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I we look at this a lot at work with um, psychological testing. It's a really common reason that organizations actually start using an assessment is to help get at the cultural components that are, I think, harder to assess in in, an interview. It can be fairly easy for somebody to make themselves sound collaborative, yet sometimes their assessment data shows that they're really not Maybe they're a strong driver and like to do the Lone Ranger, get it done, push really hard and aren't as collaborative. So we can provide information that um, we call it is underneath the hood. And in an interview, it's hard to get at those elements. And what we find is that if we do enough assessments with an organization, we can then go in and gather benchmarking data and then actually partner with the organization to help them see some cultural components that maybe weren't on the radar. So collaboration may be one that they're um, looking at a little bit more, but they may have um, a high feedback culture. And so bringing in a number of people who aren't giving and receiving feedback may not be a fit within that organization. And so oftentimes we can help them see these are some things that you really want to be digging into on your side, and then we'll provide it in the assessment on the back side of things. And I love that because it gives us opportunity as a company then to look at that assessment and dig in further to those areas, right? Mm-hmm. There might be ways we're hardwired that someone's either overcome or they haven't, yep. right? And knowing that background allows us to get to know the person better. Yeah. So I, it's interesting you bring up assessments because I've um, heard that they can be tricky to use in selection legally. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question, Rebecca. 
Um, so for a long time, we have um, been able to legally defend selection for assessments, and there's a couple of criteria that have to be met for that to be feasible. One, um, you have to use questionnaires that are valid for selection. So for example, things like the DISC and the Myers-Briggs have not been validated to use for that, but there are a number of best-in-class questionnaires that are specifically used to predict performance. And so you definitely want to work with an org, a consulting firm that uses that. And then secondly, you have to show that the questionnaires and the characteristics that you're measuring are job relevant. So we would really dig into what's required in this job. So for example, we have um, a lot of construction clients and um, a person's mechanical ability is really important for some operations roles. And so we would add a mechanical reasoning type of questionnaire to that because it's very job relevant. Whereas if I'm assessing a CFO, I'm not using that, but I'm using maybe some kind of numerical reasoning questionnaire because that's much more job specific and therefore legally defensible. And I like that, Michelle, and you always say, everything's a point of data from the point you That's start right. talking to someone, yep. even as a company or as an outside assessor. Yes. We always say that always say that assessments are actually a portion of the decision. They're not a driving decision um, factor in selection. Mm-hmm. So that you take that with all the other pieces, your interviews, how they interact with people when they're walking in your building, all the con, excuse me, phone calls that you've had. Um, and that actually will help drive your decision making, but it's a point in the decision, not the decision factor itself for yes, us. Yes, totally agree. Rebecca, I appreciate that you brought up this idea of culture fit as it fits into the selection process. Because while there are a lot of people out there who might be able to do the job, what you're really looking for is the person who's going to be able to do it most effectively in this particular department, in this particular organization, which requires some sort of cultural assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think we mentioned it earlier, Michelle, you mentioned that you have to start by understanding what is your culture. You have to be able to articulate that to a job candidate. If not, there's no way to really ask a question that's driving at that specific aspect of your culture. As an HR professional um, who gets involved from time to time, when selection decisions are challenged, nothing like it's under my skin more than having a hiring leader who simply says, we didn't select them because they didn't didn't, um, fit our culture or they didn't meet our brand standards okay what does that actually mean and a lot of times when I would ask that well what exactly does that mean it would be deer in the headlights because they didn't know they weren't able to articulate what was the cultural aspect we were assessing and then what about their behavior didn't fit that and of course that's what we need in terms of providing um, a legally defensible argument as to why we did not select that person Um, and Mm -hmm. That's, that goes with asking behavioral interview questions, but also in terms of how we interpret assessment data as well. And Michelle, I like that you pointed out anytime we're using assessments for selection purposes, we want to make sure that we've got appropriate consultants and or experts in the field involved to ensure that even with the best of intentions that we're interpreting the assessment data appropriately and using mm-hmm. it appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Awesome. I love that that everything's a data point. I think that's a good thing to remind people because we do try to over rely on certain things at times. 
um, gut instinct versus asking the right questions or like the chatty. I've been in a lot of interviews and I'm a bit guilty of this sometimes myself. Like, let's just get to know the person and then not really assess what we need to. Um, but culture is a tough one. And I would say just as icing on the cake on this question, talk to everyone in the chain who has had contact, the scheduler who can tell you that they've had difficulty getting this person to respond or the receptionist who can tell you they were like the nicest, chattiest person in the um, lobby that they've had in a long time, um, really felt like they were a caring person, blah, blah, blah. So um, have those conversations, check in, um, again, talk with everyone so you can get as well-rounded picture as you can, collecting all those multiple data points that you have access to. Yep, totally advice. agree. So this next piece is that second trend around flexibility. So we know that winning candidates for our jobs has not gotten easier. Um, perhaps we could say that the millennial value system is driving a bit of change around flexibility, but I frankly think all of us would rather have these same benefits, more flexible work schedules, things like unlimited vacation, flexible work uh, locations, et cetera. So what are some things you'd help leaders consider if they were trying to create more flexibility in the workplace? It's a wonderful question because we hear this all the time. In fact, every time we have an opening in my company, we're, we talk about where does this have to sit? Does this have to sit um, in our headquarters? And we're a global company. We talk about is there flexibility about how the job might happen? Oftentimes, flexibility around a job might happen comes to us because we might have an individual in a role that needs to change um, how they're doing work. Right? Maybe they need to go part-time. Could you have two per people work part-time to do a job? Um, we know that people want more flexibility and work from home. There are some jobs that you have the availability to do that. There are other jobs that you're going to need in person, right? A front desk hotel clerk needs to be in person, most likely, right? To have someone to remotely try to check someone in makes a challenge. But as we continue to grow in a state where Unemployment is so low globally, and we mm -hmm. hear this across the board in almost every country. Finding the right talent at the right time, it's driving us mm -hmm. to be more flexible in how we do it. And so we often will walk leaders through questions of what is really needed for the job. What is the skill set? What skill set could you give that someone could learn? Do you have someone in your pipeline, right, that could do a part of this job as added to what they're currently doing, just to think differently. I think we have to do that in order to help continue to drive our business. Michelle, as you're having conversations with leaders about this, particularly at this time with low unemployment rate, I'm curious as to um, when that conversation is happening. Is that happening at the very front end of the scoping of what our recruiting process is looking like? Or is it more of a, oh, shoot, we're not finding the candidates we're looking for. <laughs> now what do we do? It's both. Um, yeah. We our recruiters actually ask that question at the front of every recruitment process. And in fact, we've actually backed it up now to talk about it in our budgeting process. Oh, nice. Right? So when Very we're good. doing workforce planning, mm -hmm. it's where does this really need to sit? Where is the talent located? Um, and can we do something different? We often, in fact, I've had managers in other offices say, hey, we're looking for new space. Do we need to get something larger? Would you put a team here? Mm -hmm. Right, we try to match that, and so we try to think through those things on the front end. Um, 
And it also happens on the back end, right? Of, hey, I found this candidate and they're not willing to relocate. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to consider this person? Um, and some of that's based on personal, some of it's immigration issues, right? Maybe we can't relocate them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so can we make it happen? And so we, we have those conversations. It also is requiring companies to get more used to use flexing that muscle of thinking differently mm-hmm right? Maybe it's a technical need that they need to do, right? Do I need video capability within my company? If a company doesn't have that, it's, and being able to see that face to face time at mm-hmm. face is really important to them. Um, it's thinking through how you do your work. And so we try to get managers to think of that up front. Awesome. No, I think that's really great. And um, you're right. The talent supply is definitely pushing us through some boundaries that we probably wouldn't otherwise have pushed ourselves toward. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, technology's caught up, if not ahead of our workplace desires. So there are a lot of ways to enable that. Um, and I'm, I'm anxious to see where that will go in the future. I think it will get even better um, as, as the things evolve. So let's transition to this third topic of pay transparency. Um, on the recruiting end of it, it is now illegal in many states, including California, Colorado, Illinois, many others, um, to ask a person what they're currently making in order to form your offer. So what's the best way to deal with this? And do you think it's still safe or even a good idea to ask this question where it is legal? So I always opt on the side of transparency personally. Right, you want to be able to talk up front of what you can actually pay for a job. Often we may not give the whole range, but we'll say, you know, for this market, this is the range that we're looking to pay in. There's nothing worse than going through an entire recruitment cycle and get to the end and find out you can't afford the person or they're never going to accept what you can pay. So mm-hmm. as much as you can have that conversation up front, it's really important. The whole piece around why it's illegal to Um, ask that question of what you're currently making isn't about transparency. It's about equity, right? Mm -hmm. Are we being equitable in how we pay people? And there was a mindset that if I ask you what you pay and we've historically paid an underserved group, whether it's female, whether it's race, whether it's disability, Mm -hmm. if I, if I have a trend of paying them low and I know what they're making, then I'm just going to base my salary off of what they're making. And so it does require companies to think differently. And we always say, you should pay for the job. Now, with that being said, every person has their own compensation story. I might have two people with the same title doing the same thing at my company that Sandy or Michelle or you, Rebecca, have at your company. But those titles may not mean the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard sometimes for people to go out and say, oh, I'm a widget maker and this is what I should make right? Because I see all other widget makers with this title make X dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, it's digging in, helping to understand what that means and being able to communicate to individuals what that means in your organization and walk through what that market looks like. Someone might have been in their role five years and I'm comparing them to someone that has five to 10 more years of experience than I do. I automatically think we have the same title, we should be paid the same. So we have to allow for those nuances. We absolutely should not discriminate um, based on class or just because someone's different than who we've hired before. Mm -hmm. But we also have to allow for experience and those things that might add or give someone salary that might be different than others. 
Yeah, I think that this is an interesting one to kind of think about with internal versus external candidates, because I think that that's where I personally seen a lot of mm-hmm. pay equity issues, that it seems easier, at least this is my perception, to get paid more extern- if you're an external candidate than an internal candidate. So what are you guys doing to try to kind of reconcile that given these laws? So you're right. If it's internal, you know what they're making. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still take a philosophy and we try to say, what is the job? Um, does someone meet those requirements? And we've had actual situations where someone's doing a job today where they apply for another job where they actually had previous experience outside of our company doing and the pay doesn't match, right? So they're paying at the right market for the job they're doing, but maybe they need a 20% increase because mm-hmm. the job that they're going to, they have the skill set for, they have mm-hmm. the experience, and so we should be paying that. We look at that on a case-by-case basis. Like every other organization, we also have budgets. Um, we also have rules around how we actually promote and what we look at, how we do salaries, um, what we approve. And so we put those mechanisms in place to be able to review that, to make sure that we're actually paying. It is sometimes hard, particularly for those that start their career in a company right out of school, yeah. to mm-hmm. sometimes catch up with the market. Right. And so you might look at things in your company like market adjustments over time. Right. It doesn't have to be around a promotion or another job move. It's Mm -hmm. continually looking to say, am I paying my people for the market that they're doing? And you can't do everything all at once. Um, Sometimes you can, depending on what you need to do, but making sure that you have the right pay at the right level for the right people. Mm -hmm. Great points. So how do you feel about pay transparency? Um, my first job was as an educator, and it was shocking to me um, how everyone in the community knew what we made. And then my second job was at a community college, and they literally printed it and distributed it in the lunchroom, and you could leaf through and see what everyone else made. It was shocking to me um, for that kind of transparency, but I'm hearing that now 20 years later become a trend in corporate. So I'm curious about all of your perspectives on that. I honestly have mixed emotions on it. Um, There is, being a publicly traded company, there's pieces of our executive team you automatically see, right? We're required Mm -hmm. to publish it. Yes. I don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong. However, pay is often very personal to an individual. In fact, it's one of those things that are protected. It's a private data point, right? So we say on one hand, well, pay should be transparent. On the other hand, we have laws that protect us from actually disclosing people's pay right? Because it's considered a privacy factor. And so I think that we've got to figure that out. Um, I, you know, my personal is, I don't know that I would publish everyone uh, because it's very hard. It automatically creates that mindset that I'm not making enough, but -hmm. you don't know that other person's story. You don't know their background necessarily or all their experience or the reasons why. It's just a data point. And you're automatically going to compare yourself no matter who they are. They're like, oh my gosh, I, I do more than that person. I should be making more, right? Because mm-hmm. that's your perception. And that might mm-hmm. actually be valid, but it's hard to prove that. And I've not met anyone that has ever said, pay me less. Um, it's rare that you find that, right? Or I'm making mm-hmm. too much money. We mm-hmm. all want to make more money um, in our value. So it's a very hard topic. I don't know that we're going to easily solve it. Um, hopefully we will at some point in time, but it is a challenge. Yeah, so this is an area where um, Rebecca and Sandy, the three of us, have a commonality. Were you guys working at our um, organization that we all worked at together when they decided to make um, salary bans public? I don't recall. 
Okay. I don't either. I have been in other organizations where it was the band yes. and then where you were in it. Yes. And um, then as they did a job posting, it would say which band that job fit into. Fit into mm-hmm. And that, you know, created interesting dynamics within the organization. But I think it was really healthy because there were some jobs, to your point, Michelle, just looking at the job title, you would have thought it was a higher level role. But then when you see where the band was and the pay range and what it would really be that helped to inform whether or not you wanted to apply for the job Mm -hmm. because maybe it was just a lateral move and not a promotion of any kind or or maybe it was two steps up and the likelihood Mm -hmm. of you getting that would be really low and without that transparency you wouldn't have an idea but I think that that's different than telling people exactly how much money I make (laughs) yeah I agree for I think for pay transparency to really um, be successful in an organization where I think most people have the best of intentions, let's be transparent. It takes a significant amount of education. Mm -hmm. So the four of us have some HR background and we recognize that there are a lot of factors that go into making pay decisions for associates and that there are laws that govern how we make those decisions. But the average associate doesn't have insight into that. No fault of their own. We've never told them. Here's exactly the factors Mm -hmm. that we're looking at. And so I think it's natural human nature. As soon as you find out what someone else's data point is, you automatically compare it to yours. And when I led the comp team, there was nothing that surprised me more than finding people who knew they were making more money than their colleagues or the other people on their team, and they were still unhappy. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, I expected the people on the low end to be unhappy, but you're Mm -hmm. making more than everyone else. And it was really because in their mind, they have a perception of how valuable that other person is. And they're making a personal judgment about where their data point should be as compared to where it is. So there Mm. are a lot of factors that go into this concept of pay transparency. And as you think about your organization's culture and employee morale and how do we manage all of these pieces together, I, I think it has to be done really carefully. Absolutely. Easy way to in- disengage people, totally oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. So many of our listeners are sole proprietors, and they don't have the luxury of HR experts like you all uh, to advise them on some of these trends. For one, I'm curious to know where you would suggest a leader find the most credible salary market data. Because I know there's a lot of things out there people Google to decide how much they're worth, but are there some sources that are maybe more credible than others? I would say definitely yes. There are definitely sources. You can do a number of, you can go out and purchase a number of market data um, and at varying levels of cost. So I would definitely, as I would, if I was an organization, invest in that. We're starting to actually see a shift to, though, taking into account and looking at what people might actually post out on some of those social media sites. Because like Glassdoor. Like Glassdoor or mm-hmm. Payscale or any one of those. Where right? people self-report. Yes. Yep. Now, we historically we have said, oh, those aren't reliable, right? Um, market data, when you purchase it, is by companies that choose to participate in a market data and they're actually choosing to disclose compensation, right? So you have actual compensation from a company versus someone self-disclosing. The challenge is, is that... We've seen fewer and fewer companies start to participate in those. Mm -hmm. 
And so because data is becoming so well known out there in the market, people are posting. So I think that you have to balance that. I wouldn't go to one extreme or the other. I would do a combination of both um, to try and find that out. Um, I would rely and lean towards that data that you can get that you know companies are reporting and they're reporting specifically what's paid um, for a position. It also allows you then to see how companies are defining a job. So you'll we'll look for what we call market matches, right? Because if it's just out on the mm-hmm. web, it's hard to do that, right? You're basing it on a title, not necessarily a descriptor of that job right. or the level of that job um, within an organization. So that's where I would encourage people to look for those market data surveys that they can purchase and actually participate in. Yeah, and I would say for the um, small, like sole proprietorship Mm -hmm. that couldn't afford that, like I have some clients that are tiny and I'm their outsourced HR person, so I end up weighing in on all sorts of things. (laughs) And um, so I think that you can also outsource that component to where you don't need a full-time person to do that, but making sure Mm -hmm. that something like compensation Um, that is very important. It's a key engagement factor that you want to make sure that you're getting it right on the front end when you're hiring someone. So if we don't have the luxury of having a Michelle King um, working (laughs) for us, (laughs) um, you can find it in other ways, including um, online sources and everything that you talked about. Absolutely. Well, very good. Thank you, ladies. This has been super informative. Uh, Michelle King, thank you so much for spending your time and expertise with us. Um, If you have not checked out leadtravelpray.com, we encourage all of our listeners to go there for show notes and to see past blogs and shows. And also you can follow us on Twitter at leadtravelpray.com. Until next time, have a wonderful time following your leadership, travel, and faith interest. Take care.